0: Hi, everyone, and welcome. Uh, this is another talk about sustainability. Uh, we are focused on ocean plastics and ocean pollution, especially between June 8th. Uh, there's a bit of feedback on your side, Muddy. Can you maybe turn down the speaker a little bit? Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Uh, So between June 8th, June 8th was World Oceans Day. And coming up next week, uh, July 22nd is Umi no Hi, which is Japan's Ocean Day. So between these two times, these like six week period, I've been trying to talk with experts in Japan and around the world who have some insights about the ocean plastic problem, doing cleanups. And Marik Dorhegi, who has been in the series before talking about her shark research, joins us again today from Germany. Thank you so much.
1: You're welcome and good morning. So it's nice nice to see you. Uh, it's nice to be on your show again and look forward to talking to you today.
0: Wonderful to have you again. Uh, usually you're in Tokyo, but now enjoying some time at home in Germany, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. So I'm from the north of Germany, close to the North Sea on the Dutch border. And uh, yes, it's not quite as hot as Tokyo right now, uh, but we still have nice summer weather.
0: Yeah. Wow. Good, not too hot. Uh, I, I, I think we should introduce how we got passionate about the ocean. So, for me, I grew up in Hawaii. I became very aware, even as a kid, um, of the connection between nature and my my personal health and happiness. And uh, I would look at the beautiful fish in the sea growing up. And then now that I go back and visit even Hawaii more recently, I notice more plastic than fish, more pollution than nature. And this is definitely an issue that we're dealing with in Japan. So in the last few years, particularly, I've become really passionate about trying to spread awareness and trying to look for innovation, trying to look for solutions to these problems, because we made this problem. I think we can fix it, right? We, we are smart. We are clever. We're creative. There are so many people out there who are working so hard to find solutions. So I hope to introduce some of those today. How about you, Marik? How did you get passionate about studying about the oceans and about sharks?
1: So as I just said, I grew up um, near the ocean and also near a big lake. So Germany has the north, it's very flat land. So land is not very interesting, um, but we have to see. So we went sailing a lot um, when I was a child with my family. So for me, it was always natural to be like near the ocean, on the ocean. And I always loved animals. And when I was 14, I said to my dad, I want to I want to scuba dive. And he's like, OK, then you will scuba dive. So my, uh, my parents allowed me to take my dive license really, really early. And from then on, I was completely in love because now I not only saw like the ocean itself, but I also saw what was inside. And very soon I noticed um, that what I saw, the fish, like it just didn't look quite as what I saw on National Geographic. And I was like, where, like, I love sharks. And I was like, where are the sharks? And they were so hard to find. And there were so few fish, or so few big fish. And that's when I learned about overfishing, which, you know, for me as a shark researcher, this is um, overfishing is the biggest threat to sharks and to many, many other fish populations. And that's when I started becoming passionate about the issue we have. And um, of course the two are connected. You said you notice A lot more um, plastic in the ocean now and a big part of this plastic in the ocean is something we call ghost gear it's abandoned fishing gear and it's it's gear that keeps on fishing and it keeps on killing especially large marine animals like turtles sharks dolphins and so on so that's why um, i'm of course also very passionate about this topic as well
0: yeah fantastic oh well horrible horrible but fantastic that you're researching it that you're helping to spread awareness and you're you're writing about it as well on uh articles that you write as well as for your research for your degree is that right
1: yeah exactly so i completed a phd in japan at a university in tokyo i did my research on the sustainable shark fishery the sustainability of the shark fishery in japan And I often, yeah, I've been on Shark Week last year. Sadly, no Shark Week for me this year, which is actually happening right now Um, because of uh, COVID. We couldn't get the film crew over. Um, I've appeared on podcasts. I've read articles. And I also have my own my own startup together with a business partner in Bali. So what we do is we want to include local communities in marine ecotourism. So we often hear like, oh, marine life, like sharks are so much more valuable alive than that, which is very, very true for um, often foreign owned dive shops, or big hotel chains. And we want to make sure that some of this money flows back to the local communities so that they also have incentive to actually protect these animals instead of poaching them.
0: That's a really good way to incentivize and to provide income for keeping these animals alive instead of killing them. And I think we talked about that in the interview on Seeking Sustainability Live about your research. That's such an important part Mm -hmm. of it to show economic value, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: Now, let's talk about some of the pages that you shared with me. Uh, Hi, Walt from Ireland. Hello, Louise from New Zealand. Thank you guys for joining. Great to see you here. Um, So let's talk about the plastic garbage patch. Uh, Can you introduce that?
1: Yeah, so so often I I think think when we hear about ocean plastic, I think people have two questions. It's like, number one, it's like, where is it coming from? And then number two is... Where is it gonna end up, and is it gonna stay there forever? So um, maybe even before we talk about like, uh, so the the um, Great Pacific Garbage Patch, which is probably quite famous by now, um, people often like wonder where it's coming from, like where where is all the plastic coming from? And there's different sources. So one source I already mentioned is coming from like fisheries and marine, as marine nautical activities they, um, there's like rubbish, and especially plastic being dumped in the ocean. Plastic makes up about 80% of what gets dumped in the ocean, so marine activities. And that's only like a 10th or so of it. But about 90%, it, it comes from the land. And again, like, People throwing things away at the beach or like off a ship is only a small part. A lot of it comes like I see you have good footage there. Um, for us in Asia, Joy, one of the biggest um, sources of ocean uh, plastic entering the ocean is rivers, especially rivers in Southeast Asia. So we have a lot of um, communities or countries that are underdeveloped. So they do not have a municipal waste management system. They literally, a lot of these people, they throw everything in the river, not because they're evil, they have no other choice. They, no one has ever presented them with another choice. And as you know, all rivers eventually flow to the ocean. So that's um, it's a big source. And then, yeah, with the, um, the garbage patches, so especially Great Pacific Garbage Patch has gotten so much media attention over the last few years. That's where a lot, a lot of the plastic eventually ends up. So as so we know, the ocean has currents. And the currents, um, they converge. And that's where we have like big, big patches where, um, finally, a lot of that garbage accumulates.
0: It's a bit difficult to show the website right now I'm trying to present the website um, yeah. but, but if you search a uh, great Pacific garbage patch it's pretty easy to find uh, information and and images it's absolutely stunning how massive the problem is and it, it's it's being addressed by organizations but it really needs to be addressed by changing the way that we shop and putting pressure on the companies to change how much plastic they're putting into our products. And we want to buy the product, right? Why are they selling us this plastic container that can't be recycled, right? Why are the fishermen using plastics that are going to be there for 500 years? So we need to stop the source, turn off the tap, so to speak, right? Uh, yes. to help with some of these problems.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so I think definitely at the, the, the base of that pyramid, like how do we solve this problem? There's definitely we have to produce and consume less plastic, single-use plastic. And then the next step would be um, create more durable things, like reusable packaging and so on, so that we have less. And of course recycling also comes comes into it, but it's only kind of the third, the third step where we're like, hey, we recycle it, or even um just have other forms of proper waste management. So for example, we know Japan incinerates a lot of their waste. And it sounds really horrible for us at first. We we're like, oh no, like burning garbage, um, but with modern technology, um, they can they can filter it quite well and that means you definitely you reduce you reduce the, pro- the problem a lot by burning it. It's, it's not the best solution, but if you burn it, at least it doesn't end up in the ocean. But this is really only, it's like a stopgap measure and we must come up with something better.
0: Yeah, for sure. Uh, Walt is saying our farmer's markets have stopped supplying food and plastic. That's wonderful. Um, mm-hmm. We also have a few farmers that uh, I've asked if they can ship at least my vegetables in newspaper. And they said some of their other customers have asked for that too. So sometimes just asking the question in a nice way, like, don't be like, you have to do it, you know, not too much pressure, but like soft power, soft pressure um, to ask nicely, is it possible? And then sometimes you have a strong effect, I think, especially in Japan, right?
1: yeah exactly i i think so as well and of course like uh, companies they will cater to what they think people want and as long as they believe like oh people want this convenience um or they don't mind the plastic packaging and they have not they don't really have any incentive to change it and in the end i agree like we need a lot of change from governments so there needs to be legislations um that, for example, not only prohibit some things, but also incentivize other things so that we all have incentive to use less garbage, produce less garbage, to look for alternatives. And also, of course, big corporations that they change the way they they package things and so on. And of course, the what well, we as a single person or as a consumer, we feel like, oh, I can't make these legislations. So I can't like, I'm not producing, I'm not craft producing all these foods, but we can influence them. And I think that's one of our big roles here
0: yeah definitely uh yeah. one of the solutions uh you mentioned a lot of the plastic from households is coming out to the ocean via rivers yeah. so there is a wonderful organization called the ocean cleanup and they <laughs> are raising lots of money and doing lots of scientific research to put these machines which are called the interceptors into rivers, the most polluted rivers around the world. Their target is to tackle 100 rivers, uh, 1,000 rivers in five years. So they're working really hard all over the world. They have a fantastic podcast. So you can listen to their activities with their staff in countries around the world, as well as at the Ocean Garbage Patch. They're trying to have interceptor machines there to collect the garbage and then to reuse a lot of what they collect to make products, which then they sell and it funds more of their activities. I think this is one of the big problems for uh, good corporations, good organizations who are doing cleanup is how do they make money from it? Who should pay for it? That's a a big part of the problem, don't you think, Mari?
1: Yeah, it is. So also, as I told you, like I have my own startup, which is currently running in Southeast Asia. Maybe we'll soon onboard Maldives, And we're always like, we have these ideas that are good for the environment. And we're like, oh, who's going to fund it? And it sounds like they're already looking for a solution how they can actually uh, make money as well from their projects so they're not completely reliant on maybe the government grants and so on. Um, but yes, yeah, it's, it's definitely something that's been an issue here because basically a lot, like all of us, the whole human population, we left this problem in the ocean and someone has to clean it up and now they're struggling, um, with finding a way to finance it. So which also always makes me think like, definitely there's a lot of government responsibility, um, big corporations uh, and so on, but currently we're we're not forcing anyone to do that um, right now. And it's definitely a big problem because if we think it, if we consume plastic, if we use plastic, We should already factor in that we somehow need to dispose of it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's amazing. Like you you said before, it's also a lot of the pressure is put only on consumers. Uh, Excuse me, who sold me that product that I can't get rid of? Right. Like, why isn't more pressure on policymakers for leadership? and on the companies to do better, right? So, of course, what the Ocean Cleanup is doing is fantastic. Uh, We should definitely support them. Um, But also, they want to put pressure more on the companies. And it's very interesting. They just got a big sponsorship deal by Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola is starting to sponsor cleanup activities around the world because they are starting to own the fact that they are one of the biggest polluters in the world. So, you know, some people feel conflicted about taking money from the biggest polluter, but I think their argument is it actually helps them change and become a better company along the way because they realize and they're sponsoring this, which is great, but they're also seeing a lot of their products, Come in, so it's very conflicting for their own brand. It's very interesting.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I know, like, so Coca Cola has struggled with their image for years. Um, there were like health concerns that damaged their image, and then later on, there was so Coca Cola bottles are or the cans. They're so branded and then you're you kayaking somewhere in remote indonesia or other people they were literally in the middle of the pacific and then they found a coke can and it really really made them really really angry and i think that's how um coca-cola ended up a lot on these on the footage of marine garbage in the most remote places in the world or also people they i know people have sent in these items to coca-cola and said like look you're polluting the planet which is, um, it's half the truth because someone purchased that and someone put it there. That was not Coca-Cola itself, but they stepped up to their responsibility. And I have to say, they actually have a very a strong envir- a corporate environmental responsibility program. And if they're stepping up now, we should, uh, I mean, we should absolutely applaud them.
0: Yeah. I, it's, and there was another organization, uh, which I, I'll talk about a bit later, um, yeah. called CBIN, and they're they're collecting plastic and not using machines, but it's it's a very simple design it's It's just collecting um plastic and collecting data at the same time and they are also taking sponsorship from coca cola and they also felt very conflicted, but they mm-hmm. said, if this allows our business to continue, then that's a good thing. you know so it's it's something that every business, every organization is going to have to judge for themselves. I don't think there is a blanket yes or no answer, right?
1: Yeah, not not for all organizations. So I can, for example, tell you my own um, startup. We've gotten support from Virgin. And Virgin also has a large foundation that um, fights for ocean causes. Uh, probably because he lives in Australia. Um, They're very, very aware of their marine environment. But then others, again, could say, like, oh, you know, it's an airline. and now we have space missions. How good is that for climate change? Um, So I think we haven't found the ideal solution yet. So I also see, like, some comments. It's like, Coke is just buying time. Maybe yes, maybe no. But... um, I think we can give them a chance, but we should definitely monitor their other activities. Are they just like throwing money at a few NGOs and not changing anything else? Or do we also see deeper changes on their organizational level where they maybe um, start thinking exactly about their packaging, if there can be changes made there that are more um, sustainable and long-term?
0: Definitely. Um, I always refer back to, um, it would be great to have old style retro coke machines. So I was in the mall yesterday in Japan and sometimes you see these old retro style machines where you buy the drink, you open the door, you take the drink in a glass container, you drink it and you put the glass container down in the con- in the you know collection container. It's washed and reused and put back in the machine. You know, this is this is technology that we were using 20 years ago all over the world. So let's bring it back. Uh, We know that people are are carrying around their own water bottles. Why can't we have drink machines where I can pay for what I want inside and put my own container underneath to catch? Why do I even need their container? Right. I I think you have a lot of solutions already. We just need to find ways to put them into operation, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. I think now, 2021, we have pretty much developed um, full solutions for all these problems. We can technically do it, but what often is the issue... um, how how do we make it work in reality? And like, for example, interrupting existing supply chains and replacing things with something new. So now, yeah, everyone got so used to to plastic bottles and to cans, and the so the, the process is existing, the supply chain is existing, and we need to um yeah, so that needs to be interrupted. And that sadly is a long process. It's not that we lack the, the innovations. And yeah, also someone is mentioning um plastic bottles are lighter than glass and that's why eventually they were, the switch was made because of course these these companies they have um, a lot of consideration besides environment and then often the economic considerations were put at the forefront especially when these decisions were made like we had the plastic boom i think in, it started in the 1950s that it became so commonplace And it was all convenience and no one calculated the real cost. And now we are faced with the real cost. And we're like, okay, who's going to take the the trash back out of the ocean?
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, Something that I didn't realize, and I don't know if you knew this, Marik, but when wine is shipped, maybe only from Australia, probably not, probably any wine country, When wine is shipped from Australia to Japan and many countries, it is shipped in giant, like inflatable containers. And then it's bottled in the country that's going to sell it. So it's not shipped in bottles. And I think this is probably true for a lot of drinks. It's Mm -hmm. shipped in big containers, which is just the liquid and then when it arrives for bottling, or maybe the recipe is actually done in the country where it's sold. So I think this, uh, we want more transparency. We wanna know where all the costs are. Is it from the shipping? Is it because of weight? Like, just tell us, and then we'll help you find a solution, you know? (laughs) But I was really surprised to hear that, that it's not often, it's not bottles being shipped around the world. That was really interesting
1: yeah i i didn't know about that but it makes a lot of sense because um probably arrives from australia to japan by ship and um the space is very sparse on these ships so it it saves them space it saves them weight because if you overload your ship it's gonna like lie so much deeper in the ocean it's like oh there's all these like limits on that so that's a really really smart solution but it also means like okay so we can have a, a local or national Change. like it doesn't need to be changed necessarily at the source. So I can tell you something else that you might find interesting. For me, it's been like this my whole life for three decades. So I'm in Germany now and um, I know Americans always come and they're like, oh, they're all the Northern Europeans. They're like, we like to drink sparkling water and our sparkling water comes in glass bottles. I know you can also purchase like at the, the drinks market, you can purchase in like plastic bottles, but almost no one does because people prefer glass bottles. Like someone also said in the comments, they like drinks better from, from glass bottles, they feel it tastes better. So we have all these uh, these glass bottles and then once we're, we're done with our container, we can either call the, uh, the drinks market to like come and pick it up and they, they'll pick it up again. Um, or we go back and we return all the bottles and then we get our deposit back. So all of these glass bottles, they have a deposit 20, 30 cents or something. So you get it back. So it's this um, it's this recycling system. And then, yeah, as you said, the bottles, they just get washed and they put a new paper label on and then they get reused. And that's, it's how it's been for like years and years and years. And I think they just never changed it.
0: It's wonderful. And uh, I was a student in Norway. Uh, Many years ago, I did an exchange program and my university sent me for a semester to Norway. And it was such an eye opening experience on many levels, learning about, you know, like social equity for prisoners who get to go out in the community and work Uh, urban planning, how women and men should be equal in leadership. So much I learned, but I also was really blown away by the whole supermarket system. So when I went to buy milk or juice or soda or beer, it was in the same size bottle. And I would pay a deposit, like you said, and then I would use it, bring it back, get my deposit back. It was washed and reused for a variety of different liquids. It was use of the same bottle. And I was just blown away by how great that is. And recently I met some Norwegians and I said, I love that idea. And they said, oh, that was phased out about 10 years ago. No, that's so awful. I was so <laughs> sad to hear that they changed and started using plastic,
1: just like everybody uh, else in the world, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, also. Someone else is saying they used to collect the uh, the bottles, <laughs> and uh, like collect a little d- deposit. And um, I think these are like yeah, five pence, ten pence. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So so uh, Germany's kept that system, and everyone is is used to it. So I think it just is what we always done. So no one feels like oh how inconvenient. I need to like. They can deliver it to you, so you don't need to like lock the heavy um, a box of of water bottles. And then yeah, we we just bring it back. And I think no one like people don't feel like oh okay, let me just instead throw um, plastic bottle away because we we're not used to it. So I think it's a lot of like not only convenience, it's also just what people are used to. Yeah.
0: yeah. Definitely. Um, And you also had a great example of how people can use social media to create awareness. Can you talk about this one? This was so powerful.
1: Yeah. So now the last 18 months, the world has been busy with COVID. But if you all remember, before COVID, in uh, like it kicked off in 2018 and it was going really, really strong in 2019. There was a viral video, like you show some pictures here, of a turtle, a sea turtle that had a plastic straw stuck in its nose. And I think people were so moved and horrified by this video that suddenly this movement started where everyone was like, bend the straws, bend the straws. And lo and behold, a lot of um, cities countries states started banning straws people started coming out with glass straws bamboo straws um all sorts of non-plastic alternatives and while on the one hand in the beginning the conversation was very very focused only on straws which are one single item um it soon sparked more discussions and more legislations that for example now in japan we have to pay for our plastic bags as of last year if i'm not completely wrong um, same here in Germany, many other European countries, you need to pay for your plastic bags. Then um, on the back of the, the, the turtle going viral, for example, Taiwan also announced to phase out a lot of single-use plastic. Um, I know Stansi barriers become a plastic-free island, you can't even bring a plastic bag onto the island if you travel on it. And so many more countries were um, announcing these legislations that they're going to fade out and replace and so on. So this was, this was us, like we, we kicked that off. And so it's, even though we might feel small, sometimes all the problems is too big because we know, as also someone else said in the comments before, they're like, oh, plastic never breaks down, never goes away again. Um, and it seems overwhelming, but there is a lot we can kick off. So that became absolutely global.
0: Definitely. And there's there's uh, another organization that I wanted to mention because I'm so inspired by how they are motivating people around the world to be innovative. And they have something called a pitch fest where they're uh, you. It's an Australian based organization called Ocean Impact. And they have so many great ideas because they do this ongoing pitch fest and they have people with great ideas from around the world pitch their business idea and they can win 50,000 Australian dollars or something. It's a significant amount of funding and last year's winner, it was really interesting. She created a product which was to replace styrofoam because styrofoam is such a big problem. And mm-hmm. we don't know how long styrofoam is going to last. What is it called in Japanese? I can never remember the name. But in Europe, it's called polystyrene, maybe. But in America, uh, call it styrofoam. You, uh,
1: we also call it styrofoam. styrofoam. So I think all the okay. European languages have probably like a slight variation of the the word, that's still very, very similar. Yeah.
0: Right. So her idea, uh, she's in Australia. She uh, talked to sheep farmers and there was a lot of waste wool from the sheep farmers. And so she created a kind of wool-based uh, insulation to replace a styrofoam box. And they've been very successful with medicine transfers around the world because usually that goes in styrofoam uh, for fish, for different kinds of food. So there are such innovative, amazing ideas out there. And if you have this kind of contest, you can draw in a lot of this innovation and then share it to other people around the world who might try something similar in their area. I just love it. It's such a great. It seems really simple. I would love to see more of it. Right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Because as as we said before, like the the alternative already exists. It's just like um, getting people to to adopt it. So and then she found out, like, hey, we have this like I guess is low quality wool that can't be used for clothes production. Let's use it in a different way. Um, what I often see here in Europe is. Um, I don't know what it's called in English. In in German, it's called wood wool. It's like these like thin flexible spirals of wood. And it's also used for like packaging to make sure things don't break in, in transport. And of course that as it's wood and uh, forests are luckily very, very well managed here. Um, that's a sustainable resource. Yeah.
0: Yeah, if we can find alternatives, you know, that's that's what we need yeah. to be aiming for. And phasing plastics out, phasing styrofoams out. Um, One of the other things that Ocean Impact Organization um, had highlighted, which I know that you will love, and I don't think you've maybe heard of it yet because it was the first time I heard of it. Uh, They talked to a shark safe barrier researcher and she is creating. Do you do you know her? Uh, She is Dr. Sarah Andretti. and. no. She has her idea, which she's been testing is kind of a wall of seaweed and the wall of seaweed also has magnets in it. So if a shark goes near it, they swim away. And this was to replace all of the ghost nets, like you mentioned before, where sharks are getting trapped, uh, turtles are getting trapped, and it's actually not keeping swimmers safe So instead of those kind of nets to change with this kind of living net of seaweed and magnets, which seaweed then also draws down carbon. Oh, my gosh. It's just a multi-solution concept, and I just love it. Yes, yeah,
1: absolutely. So for, for me, like, I'm now so glad we can talk about sharks again. Um, so those nets you're talking about, they're not ghost gear, because ghost gear is literally just like thrown away fishing nets or other fishing gear that could be floating anywhere in the middle of the ocean. Um, and what you're talking about is often in Australia or also, for example, in South Africa, um, they have uh, nets um, just outside the beaches where they say like, oh, this beach is shark safe. We put a barrier. But if you were to swim up to it and look at what this barrier actually is, it's literally just a net that's about uh, five meters or sometimes 10 meters, so, so depending on the depths, or so deep, um, that's supposed to act as a barrier to keep the sharks out of the, the beach or the bay. And, I mean, first of all, that doesn't work because they're still, like they're open on the bottom, like large fish can still get through. And what does happen on these uh, nets, a lot of marine life gets entangled. So if we go to the nets, we see so many dead sharks that suffocated to death, there are turtles, and then also, for example, dolphins or other large fish. And it's just absolutely tragic that we we decided to put this, first of all, non-functioning, and then so damaging, solution in place to give swimmers the illusion of being safe. And then yeah, we know, for example, from um, California, anyone who's ever been swimming in California, so there are great whites, but they do not come into the kelp forest. And the same in in South Africa. So you can also, I think many have seen the um, My Octopus Teacher, and we see him, he's always diving in the, uh, by himself, free diving in the kelp forest. And there is no large Sharks, so that naturally keeps it out. So I think she's absolutely brilliant, and yeah, marine plants actually they capture more CO two than plants on land. Um, so she has absolutely fantastic solution, and I hope she can persuade many communities to get rid of their old shark nets, which are so 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 damaging, and replace it with that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It was so exciting to hear this because living in Japan, of course, we eat a lot of seaweed and kelp. So this seems like another multifunction solution. We can create food. We can create benefit, like product for the economy, as well as keeping sharks safe and people safe um, from areas that we don't want sharks to come in. You know, it just it's a wonderful solution. So I was so happy to hear. About this, um, yeah. And I thought, and also, I of I like
1: <laughs> some people from Australia in the comments. I lived in Australia for two years, and I remember that yes, sometimes we have incidents with sharks on beaches, and luckily it happens very rarely. But then also, I remember then the government would place drum lines, so like long lines with hooks, to try to catch the the culprit sharks. Um, outside the beaches or installing new nets. And actually there were often protests by local population. They were like, no, we don't want this because people have become so aware of uh, marine life and its importance and its beauty. So it's, I think um, her solution was many communities in, in Australia and I think many other countries would, would be very, very welcome.
0: Yeah, uh, definitely. Well, uh, let's talk... Am I on mute? No, okay. Uh, Let's talk about ghost nets, because I I mentioned that, but you know a lot about that. Uh, Let's, can you introduce that to us?
1: Yeah. So if you think of um, ghost gear, so it's fishing gear has been abandoned. So these can be nets. They can also be long lines. So um, uh, monofilament lines with hooks on them. And sometimes fishers abandon their gear for different reasons. So one reason can be um, the gear is damaged and they're like oh i don't need this anymore um another reason can be the gear got snagged on something for example it got snagged on a reef or rock they can't retrieve it and then they're, again they just abandoned it or um, sometimes get lost it snaps the lines that connected to the, sh- the ship's snap or other types of gear they can't find it again and there's some really shocking statistics of for example how many ten thousands of um crab pots are lost in in the in the main area in those bays every year. And of course, these pots will keep on attracting crabs and they will die. And no one will consume them. They will they will just die for nothing. And then we have about 10% of ocean plastic is um ghost gear floating around here. And now we have this picture of the poor Mako shark that got snared in uh uh, old piece of fishing gear. So, yeah, it's it's a net that keeps them fishing. Um, it's extremely damaging to marine life, and we haven't found a great solution yet. Because So really now the only thing is if you come across ghost gear, the only thing you can do is collect it. Um, there's rules, legislation. So fisheries are, in many countries, of course, are regulated. So um, by now, fishers are, in most places in this world, they're not allowed to abandon their gear anymore. So legally it's not allowed, but about 30% of fisheries are what we call IUU fisheries, so illegal, unregulated, unmonitored. So a lot of these uh, IUU fisheries, so those fishermen um, they don't bow to the regulations and they will still abandon their gear if it's convenient to them.
0: It's so sad. I've seen yeah. people commenting as well, really sad. Yeah. And, and it's not... It's not just sharks. It's it's not just things we're afraid of. It's a lot of fish that people would like to eat. It's, you know, it's a lot of uh, good turtles that would live hundreds of years. Like, this is ridiculous that this is just allowed to keep being used um, because it lasts, we don't even know how long, maybe 500 years, right? Um, yeah. one, of the, one of the things, the litter collector in the UK that I talked to, she finds a lot of small pieces of net because Mm -hmm. now there is some policy that you're not allowed to abandon your net. So she knows that a lot of the fisher people are cutting up the nets and then throwing the pieces overboard. So then she finds all the pieces. So let's find better biodegradable, I don't know, more natural materials that don't end up snagging loads of bycatch that don't need to die. Right.
1: Yeah. Exactly. So first of all, yeah, we need the the policy and we need like um, the buy-in from the fishers that they like agree on not abandoning the gear anymore. And then we need to have different gear. So for example, Kelly, I can tell you back in the day, um, the Japanese shark fishermen I spoke to. So yeah, nowadays they use monofilament line or their nets also made from plastic. So as we know, it takes uh, centuries to degrade um, into smaller bits, which are still not good, but at least less harmful than... um, uh, than having a, a net kill, uh, keeping on killing marine life, but back in the day, their nets were made from hemp.
0: Wonderful, much yeah. much better. Yeah, uh, much better. And another, this was another uh, ocean impact organization. Great mm-hmm. uh, talk that I heard. One of their pitch fest people um, they interviewed. She's an artist in Australia, and this really it lightened something up in my brain too. how important it is that we have so many different kinds of people involved in spreading awareness. So she's an artist. You don't normally think of artists as being an important part of the process, but she's taking fishing nets and ghost net material and creating beautiful art that she sells in galleries and online and, in that way, spreads awareness to an entirely new uh, group of people that normally wouldn't even be thinking about these problems. Maybe you know, mm-hmm. really, yeah, I obviously. think
1: the awareness is like a super, super important part. And then if she she can turn it into something beautiful, it will be easier to to get people to look and to interact with the topic. Because as we all just like as we all just said and we saw in the comments, like we had pictures of turtles and sharks dying in abandoned fishing gear. And for all of us we are like that, it's just so sad. And that's also, it's the topic where a lot of us were like, oh, I don't wanna look at that. I don't wanna deal with that because I find it so overwhelming.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, So yeah, she's really inspiring. She has a beautiful uh, Instagram page where she shows how she takes these gross, gnarly ropes and nets and she disengages and detangles them. And then she weaves them again into these beautiful art pieces. It's just incredible. Yeah. Oh, I have her website here. Let me see if I can show it. Um, It's just, it's like a fantasy or mm-hmm. you know something you would see in uh you know science fiction film it's it's not something i would ever be able to imagine i love that about art right how it just mm-hmm. opens your mind to a whole new world uh, let me see if i can get it bigger so this is her website and these are oh, her wow. creations So there's big It's very very
1: mermaid-y. Yeah,
0: very, you know, big wall hangings, uh, like art pieces that might be displayed in a house or hotel. It's amazing, isn't it? And then if people look closely or very interested in it or people who buy it, maybe they learn about, oh, this is from fishing gear? Oh, maybe we need to think about that. You know, like it totally comes at the problem from a new direction mm-hmm. so i really love that yeah all right uh you yeah, wanna, yeah. Uh, do you want to talk about plankton i thought that was yes really fascinating i saw someone just yeah. mention
1: plankton in the comments and that, yeah if we um so Going back to the basics, if we think of ocean plastic, like how does it harm marine life? And there's three main ways it harms marine life. Like one is it ensnares it, kills it. Another one is what one of the commentaries just mentioned, they eat it. And then if marine life eats uh, microplastics, or so smaller bits of plastic, depending on the, the size of the creature, um, it harms them in two ways. One way is the plastic can leach um, toxins into the um, the plankton or the fish or the seabird and then they can die from that and the other reason that they can die is um, instead of proper nutritious food they pick up plastic pieces it fills up the stomach and the animal feels full but there's no nutrition and then they, they starve to death so the plastic can starve animals it can poison animals or it can ensnare animals. Uh, so yeah, I love. I absolutely love plankton. So recently, I started going a lot of beds. night dives.
0: So if you go on night
1: dives, or like yeah. um, if you go on night dives in the um, absolutely pitch black open ocean, it's called a black water dive, and at night, a lot of the plankton comes up from the deep because now it's safe for them, so they come up to forage. And if you look closely into the water column with your torch, you see these absolutely magnificent. Creatures floating around everywhere. So, of course, they will be, like, micros- like, near microscopic, like, this big. But I've seen, like, for example, um, little baby squid. They were, like, less than a centimeter. And they look like a perfect, like, mini... Mini architoitis, like mini giant squid, in in super super tiny, and you see fish. You like like oh my god, I wonder what kind of fish is that got to be once it's like larger than a few millimeters. And yet, even these planktonic creatures, they also suffer from from marine plastic, especially from microplastics.
0: Yeah. Uh, you yeah. also yeah. shared a video, which is not playing for some reason, but showing mm-hmm. how at a microscopic level, you can see how the plankton are taking in the plastics. And this is such a big problem for bigger fish as well, right? Is And birds, seabirds. Yeah. Uh, we were cleaning up the beach the other day in Hiroshima in Japan. And one of the volunteers is a young high school student. And he said, oh, it's so difficult to see which is natural and which is plastic. And I said, exactly the problem for the birds and the marine life, like this is part, a big part of the problem. It looks like food. It looks yeah. like something that should be there. You know?
1: Yeah. So, for example, turtles eat a lot of jellyfish and a plastic bag floating in the water looks a lot like a jellyfish to turtle. So they will they will eat it and then um, it will often get stuck in their in their system. And then also as we said before so what, the only thing that plastic does. So plastic is photosensitive so it reacts to the sun. And the sun, I think anyone who's had like old beach toys or something, you know like how your your plastic toys they're like dry out in the sun and then the color fades and becomes brittle. That's also what happens to the ocean plastic. So the sun breaks it down and then, and also the ocean itself, like the salinity or like, for example, movement of tides and so on in the ocean. So it breaks down to smaller and smaller, smaller pieces. And eventually the pieces are small enough that they can be ingested by plankton. And then sometimes the it passes through the system. They can get rid of it again and, and nothing happens. Phew. Um, but other times, yeah, it can get stuck in the system or toxins can leach out of them. And if you think of plankton, is um plankton uh produces about half of the world's O2 of the oxygen. So of course we have trees producing oxygen, but again, the um what's happening in the ocean like influences us so much on land. The planting is really important for that. And of course, plankton, like a lot of like the baby fish, coral, like por- coral at their lava stage, um, all the invertebrates, um. What else? Sea snails, crustaceans—they all start off as tiny, tiny plankton. So, if they get damaged by uh, microplastics, we're really starting—we're starting to damage the the base of marine life.
0: This is the video that you shared with me from Vox News, and it's it's talking about how microplastics uh, is eaten by plankton, and it shows some great footage from that. And it also talks about how, from our clothing, it's sending microplastics into the ocean. Do you want to talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, exactly. So, of course, a lot of our, like, we used to use a lot of wool and cotton, and then at the same time around when plastic became very popular in the 50s, um, people starting to use artificial fabrics, like nylon, um, polyester acrylics and these researchers studied what happens to that. and so if we throw our polyester and nylon closing and acrylic closing into washing machine, um, what happens every time like a few bits uh, will get washed out, and they will enter um, the water cycle from our washing machines because our washing machines currently, the, the we currently use, they do not have any filters. And then these like tiny, tiny bits, uh, bits of like acrylic and so on, they're just small enough to be eaten by by plankton, and uh, sadly they can harm them. And uh, yeah, we see like the biggest, um, the areas where we see this occur the most is also yeah. For example, we have South Africa, we have uh, like a hotspot around, or in Europe, this is where there's still a lot of people in the developed Western world where we, for example, with fast fashion, um, we consume a lot of these clothing, wash them a lot, and then then throw them throw them away again. And so they were again, they were also discussing solutions. What should we do? So of course, maybe many of us by now again like we prefer cotton or we prefer wool, but then we also have still the problem that often there's. They're mixes of fabrics, like maybe it's 80% cotton, still 20% acrylic, so okay, it's reduced a bit. But what we really need to do is we need to filter it. So right now it just goes unfiltered from my washing machine into the drain and then eventually into the river and into the ocean and so on. And yeah, we just saw like acrylic is the worst, is um, one of the worst and polyester, the worst shedders um the most harmful. So they're thinking now about solutions and putting filters into existing washing machines is really, really expensive. Um, so again, probably we need to ask Bosch and Miele and and all these other washing machine producers to at least include filters so we can filter it out. And one thing what I do now is I use a net like like a, a bag that I put my my clothes in and then it, it gets washed in that. And then you will see at the end of your You wash, you have like a tiny amount of like, it kind of looks like dust. Yeah, of like those fabrics, so you can take them out. And then in my case, so I put it into our recycling systems that at least, and it doesn't end up in the waterways.
0: Wow, oh, that's, a, that's a great solution. Um, I saw those net bags for sale in Patagonia, and mm-hmm. Patagonia is a very ethical company. They're trying to also own their part of the problem as a manufacturer and producer of these kind of man made uh, synthetics materials. So you can buy a bag and wash your clothes, like you said, and inside your machine, it'll catch the microplastics but you're right if we had kind of a filter in the machine or a filter in our sewage system in the wastewater system uh even a filter from the river output before it goes in the ocean catching microplastics as well as bigger plastics you know these are all solutions we should at least be trying right
1: Yeah, exactly. And I'm sorry, I think all of you you can hear my dog barking now. (laughs) Sorry about that. Um, uh, Yeah, exactly. We have a lot of solutions. Like, for example, I said, like, okay, in the future, next generation of washing machines, we can start using the filters. Maybe we should rethink what we make our clothes from. And for now, we should just use the bags. And I think we have so many solutions. It's just, like, adopting them. So I think if all of us think back... um, when I was a very small child, and I think many of you remember, we had a huge problem with the ozone layer and that was connected to hairspray. We do not have this problem now anymore, three decades later, because people recognized the problem. Um, they saw that it was unacceptable that we, especially for again for anyone who's from Australia, they were u- losing the ozone layer And we had to phase out the gases we were, for example, using in hairspray, deodorant, and so on, and replace it by something else. And that took a while for things to catch on. But what massively happened helped is that people were adamant about it. They weren't accepting it anymore. They they demanded something else. And then governments realized that they banned the gases. They were harming the ozone layer. And then also companies adjusted and replaced it with something else. And now this is thankfully is a problem of the past, which was solved by replacing something that doesn't work anymore. When we found out it didn't, um, by having a massive like bottom-up pressure, and um, yeah, companies and governments adjusting. So we can definitely do things, but things take time. And it's like I also I feel so impatient about this. But yes, we see we have all the ocean pitch Fest or other accelerators that's also how my my startup was conceived so things are happening but we really really all need to be we need to be doing our thing and putting pressure and making sure these these discussions lead to actual action
0: Absolutely. And we need all, all players, all hands on deck. It takes a village. We need policymakers. We need people in companies. We need consumers. We need activists. We need volunteers cleaning up beaches. We need schools uh, changing the way they educate kids. It's, it's really a big effort from all angles. Um, one of the things that I don't think we've touched on yet is about ocean currents yeah did, we, did you want to talk about that we have five more minutes <laughs> yeah maybe just
1: briefly so the ocean okay. currents earlier we, we talked about the great pacific garbage patch how does it happen and it's the currents so um, the currents that move our ocean so actually nowadays as researchers we don't speak about seven seas anymore because they're all connected we just call it one ocean um, the way they move they will accumulate the um the garbage so there's an atlantic garbage patch There's two Pacific garbage patches because the Pacific is very, very big. This east and west Pacific one, you can kind of see how it goes around like this in the Pacific. And then on each end, it will accumulate. And we also have another garbage patch near Australia and the one in the the Indian Ocean and so on. So eventually all these converging currents, they will um, collect the garbage in in one large area. So often we see these images online. It kind of looks like a carpet. It's not really what it looks like in real life. So the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, it's like hundreds of square kilometers. But it's more like um, individual small patches or islands of a garbage like clustered together. And then maybe for a few hundred meters, you see nothing. And then there's another one. And there's small ones and bigger ones. So it's not like one big in some place is like one big blanket but it's not that that connected but it's a, an area very very dense with garbage and then yeah getting it back to the ocean cleanup so people have like thought about like oh, what can we do can't, can't we just hoover it up um it's, of course I think f- for many of us our first like intention we're like let's let's just hoover it up and then we have another problem I think joy you can probably imagine which one you don't want to hoover up marine life together with it because then you would be killing it. So it's very, 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 very difficult. It's not, you can't just all like scoop it up with one big net or like one hoover because you have to find, you have to be very, very careful that you're not harming more marine life in the process, which is also why these processes have been so slow.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I see this whenever I do beach cleanups, um, especially with big pieces of styrofoam, which comes from the oyster, industry or comes from the fishing industry giant pieces of styrofoam and you're like oh we have to get that out of the water and then you realize all of these creatures have made that styrofoam their home right they have made little homes in there and there's living creatures in there and then it becomes more complicated okay how do we separate the life i don't want to kill everything in here Um, and yeah. it's using the plastic, but it's it's also being killed by the plastic. It's it's more complicated than it seems, and it's a it's a very multidimensional problem. But the idea is we do have solutions. Some of them are very simple. Um, so I would love to lead. I'll leave my last point with uh, everybody. Check out the Pitch Fest. Uh, They are just about to start a new round of PitchFest right now for Ocean Impact Organization. And although it's based in Australia, they take ideas and innovators, ideas from around the world. There were some great ideas from Korea and America and Australia and Europe and everywhere. So... I would recommend people, if you're looking for something inspiring and innovative, some good coming out of all these big problems, definitely have a look at Ocean Impact Organization and the Pitch Fest 2021. I'll be watching and it's about to start soon. Uh, Marik, do you have any final words you'd like to leave us with? Um, no, I think you ended it
1: quite well. That is, we're we're looking at a massive problem that has been created over decades when humans were like, "Oh, plastic is so convenient," and we didn't know the impact it would have down the line yet. Um, but there is solutions, and it's it's gonna take time to implement them right. But we have so many stories from environmental history that, for example acid rain is not a problem anymore, Um, we solved the ozone layer issue and many others and we can also solve or at least lessen um, the impact of ocean plastic.
0: Definitely, that is a great way to leave it with a little bit of remembering how we've solved other problems and we did it so let's Mm -hmm. think about how to solve these problems we're having now and let's do it. That's a great way to end it. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's awesome. Thank you guys so much for joining. Uh, so many great comments and questions today. Thank you, Marik, for joining all the way from Germany. I know it's really early there. I appreciate you tuning in and, and sharing so many of your insights as a researcher. I think it's it's really important to hear your point of view from all your interesting research. So please keep up the great work. Thank you.
1: Thank you my pleasure speak soon speak bye
0: soon. take care bye everyone